I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me. Today is a special bonus episode, an interview with the playwright of Between Breaths, Governor General award-winning writer Robert Schaefe. If you're new to Play Me, we take some of the country's best theater productions and transform them into audio dramas. We then podcast them in three chapters and follow up each show with an in-depth interview with the playwright. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Between Breaths by Robert Chafe, you're in for something special. It's a heart-wrenching yet life-affirming play that challenges us to think about how we want to live a life and what we want to leave behind when we're gone. You can listen to all three episodes of Between Breaths by subscribing to our feed through your favourite podcast player, or you can listen online by visiting cbc.ca forward slash playmecbc. Robert Chafe is a St. John's playwright whose work has been seen across Canada, the UK and Australia. He's the author of 18 stage scripts and the co-author of Another 10. He is the artistic director and playwright for Artistic Fraud of Newfoundland, where he frequently collaborates with NAC English Theatre Artistic Director Gillian Kiley. Robert has won many accolades for his work, including the Governor General's Award for Drama for the play After Image. I had a chance to talk to Robert, who was in the CBC studio in St. John's, Newfoundland. It was especially meaningful to me to sit down and talk to Robert, as I've known him for over 20 years. He's a wonderful conversationalist, he's funny, and he's deeply honest. Our conversation covered a number of great topics, from how writing a play about legacy and death was so intertwined with the passing of one of his main collaborators, to how his coming-of-age experience as a young gay writer was closely linked to growing up as a Newfoundlander. I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Here's my interview with playwright Robert Chafe. Robert, I have to say I loved prepping for this interview because it gave me a chance to think back to well, how long we've known each other. And it, it also <laughs> yeah, gave me a chance to think about some of your earliest works, like Under Wraps, which we'll talk about uh, later on. Sure. But first, for anyone who hasn't seen the production Between Breaths or listened to the podcast, can you give us just a little glimpse into what the show's about? Sure. Um on the surface, pardon the pun, on the surface, <laughs> uh, the play is about um, the life and work of Dr. John Lean, who was a um, uh, a researcher, um, uh, animal behaviorist, uh, originally from South Dakota, who moved to St. John's, Newfoundland in 1968 to work at Memorial University uh, studying seabirds. <clears throat> 
And then over the course of the next uh, 10 years, uh, found himself slowly uh, immersed in the world of large marine mammals. He he forged a career um, and an initiative here in Newfoundland of rescuing um, whales uh, that had become entrapped in fishing nets. Uh, so he started that work in the late 70s. And, uh, and over the course of his career, over the next 20, 25 years or so, he rescued over 500 animals. Wow. Uh, greatly increased the population, if you can imagine, mm-hmm. Um, the population was still threatened at that point after uh, <clears throat> commercial whaling had ended in 72. And so that on the surface, that's what the play is about. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's another aspect to the play that is uh, about how Dr. Lian's life ended. Uh, he, um, over the last eight to ten years of his life, um, kind of... Um, succumbed to uh, a slowly developing paralysis, but also uh, dementia. And so uh, this man that spent um, his very laudable career saving um, these incredible animals uh, from entrapment uh, over the last number of years of his life slowly found himself more and more confined mm-hmm. in his own life. And so the the whale entrapment is used as a metaphor uh, in talking about um, Dr. Lean's illness and his death uh, to to paint a picture of of um, the lives we leave, the legacies we leave behind, um, the kind of um, exit we want to have out of this world, that kind of thing. Right. And you tell the story backwards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you know, once we once we decided upon um, dealing with um, John's um, demise, his illness and death in the show, and how he went out, uh, it, it was kind of a no-brainer very, very quickly to realize that we, we couldn't end the show there. Pretty much everyone that I spoke to, I did a lot of um, interviews with family, friends, and colleagues of John's, and they were all, um, it's no hyperbole to say that they were all still grieving. I started that mm-hmm. process about two years after his death. Yeah. They were all still grieving, and they were particularly shaken by um, the fact that a person like John, who had lived a life so large, uh, who was so... Um, fearless and huge in the world uh, could go out with um, what could be seen as a whimper. Yeah. Uh, and, and that really, uh, it haunted people. I don't think it's hard to say that it haunted people. Mm-hmm. And so we knew that to end the show honestly, to talk about how his death manifested in his life, to talk about that um, and end the show there would be irredeemably sad <laughs> and not to be, and not paint the picture of the man and his work and his life mm-hmm. in the way that that was befitting the rest of the interviews that I was doing with yeah. these people. Mm. I was really taken by the introduction to the print version of Between Breaths. And yeah. what struck <laughs> me, yeah, was just how profoundly intertwined the birth of this piece was uh, with the death of your friend uh, and dramaturg, Iris Turcott. Would you mind talking just a bit about your relationship with her and maybe the story? Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess I, I, I've known, I'd known Iris for about 15 years by the time she passed. Um, we had met in passing when she was working at Canadian Stage in Toronto. I was introduced by a friend, and then we met a number of years later at the BAM Centre during their annual Playwrights Lab. Um, and it was a number of years after that that we actually started working together. <clears throat> it kind of came uh, about... Um, Strangely, I was at Banff working with somebody else on a, on a completely different play, and I was having a really hard time with that play. And I engaged with Iris over lunch one day talking about the, the difficulties I was having with the play. And she kind of 
you know, Iris had this incredible intuition, and she uh, off the cuff asked what else I was working on. And I told her about this other piece that was kind of very early stages in the back of my head. And she said, well, let's talk about that while you're here. And so she, even though she wasn't there to work with me, we started having meetings and talking about this other piece. And in that early session, she, um, I think, quite intentionally um, forged some confidence in me again. Even I was kind of at a really um, dark place at that point with the piece that I was working on. I was feeling very bad <laughs> yeah. about my ability to complete it. And and so Iris kind of swooped in. Uh, and so my first encounter with her as a, a, a working colleague was one where she uh, picked me up and dusted me off and, and kind of made me believe that what I had to say in the world was worthy. And I think that continued. We ended up we ended up working together quite a lot over the, the decade that ensued. She um, shaped a lot of the plays that I guess I'm most proud of now. She, The first piece that we worked on together was a piece called Afterimage that was an adaptation I did of a Michael Crummy short story mm-hmm. that ended up winning the Gigi. And, and you know, yeah. to hear Iris, this is so typical of Iris and the people that she, you know, the people that she worked with will probably nod their heads in agreement. Um, she made that seem like it was the most normal thing in the world. Like, yeah, of course you're nominated <laughs> for the Gigi. Of course you're going to get it. Because she always believed that if she was putting her intention and energy into something, it was that good. And sure. I never believed that, but she always believed that about me. And uh, she, the last piece that we worked on together was Between Breaths. And and how I came to write that piece and decide what that piece was going to be was very much tied up with my interactions with Iris as well. Um, the piece really came about as an idea because I was working on oil and water and... Um, and we were flying Iris in, this was about 2011, 2012, we were flying Iris in to do a workshop on that piece. And I had written a first draft and in uncommon fashion. I thought I'd really knocked it out of the park. I thought this was the best play ever written by anyone ever. Um, and we were flying <laughs> Iris in and we had a five-day workshop book with her. And uh, we flew her into St. John's. This was a Sunday. We were working till Friday. And, and when I finally got her to talk about the play, because she seemed kind of reticent to talk about it, uh, her first sentence was, well, if we get one good scene by Friday, I'll be happy happy <laughs> and I just wanted to like drive the car into the ditch and then we, we ensued we you know as as was our working process we started to, to bicker and argue uh, and laugh and uh, over the next three or four days uh, but it was a really difficult process she was trying to pull me in one direction I really had my head firmly rooted in the sand I didn't want to move I thought what I'd done was really good and and at one point in that process she uh, said to me you know, when you tell the story of Lanier Phillips, Oral of Water was a, a play about this gentleman, uh, Lanier Phillips, African-American um, Navy man from, um, from uh, the U.S. who uh, was shipwrecked in Newfoundland in 1942. And uh, and it's true, this story, every time I told the story about Lanier Phillips, I would cry. I found it a very moving story that I'd heard about 20 years before that. And Ira said one day, you know, every time you tell the story about Lanier Phillips, you cry, but it's not in the play yet. you got to figure out what about mm. this story moves you and put it in the play. She wasn't that polite <laughs> when she said it. And uh, that hit me like a ton of bricks because I knew she was right. That was arguably right. And I walked yeah. away from it and I kind of came back to the process with an understanding that the piece really was deeply seated in my notions about my grandmother, my my paternal grandmother. Uh, and her generation of Newfoundlanders. And once I realized that, the play un- unlocked for me and it kind of deepened into another level that I just didn't see myself capable of at the time. And and that, that process of, of engaging with something from a place of uh, mystery, a kind of engaging with a muse that 
that uh, it has a, a kind of spiritual, emotional tie to your yes. to your artistic soul somehow that you don't yet understand, and the process of writing the play is to figure out that connection. Mm-hmm. That was so incredibly um, moving and um, profoundly gratifying to me that I kind of declared on the spot that I'm never going to write another play until I, I have a situation <laughs> that happens like that. Uh, yes. Something uh, inexplicably moves me. And so uh, the following year, I was in uh, Trinity, Newfoundland. I was watching a play at the Rising Tide Festival there. And um, in the play, there was a, a guy walked forward in the play. It was a series of characters in the play. And at one point, a guy walked forward in the play uh, without naming himself and says, the thing about the humpback whale is... And in my brain, I went, it's John Lean. And I just burst into tears. And of course, I'd, I'd heard of John Lean for many, many years. And I went to school with his son. And uh, I never really had an emotional connection to his story before that moment. But it just uh, it just hit me. I just got very overwhelmed with emotion. And during intermission of that show, I turned to my friend and I said, I guess I have to write a play about John Lean now. <laughs> but I had no idea why. Um, so, you know, it could be said that 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 whole process, the very decision to come to writing about John started with Iris. <clears throat> and then she, uh, as was typical with those pieces at that time, uh, the work started with her. I, you know, I, I showed up to Toronto with an idea, and, and we we booked her for uh, a series of workshops, one week at a time, where I'd go to her house in Cabbage Town, and we would bust out all of our research, and we'd listen to tapes, and we'd watch videos, and she'd gone to the library and pulled all these books on marine ecology and um, the psychology of dying and all this stuff, and we would we'd fight and argue and laugh and go for walks, and and over the course of those first couple of workshops, um, the first draft of Between Breaths Emerged. Um, and of course, it's a huge uh, irony, which is what I talk about in the introduction of the book. It's a kind of huge, uh, bizarre, beautiful irony that uh, the piece ends up being about um, the legacy you leave in this world and, and how to exit the world and, and dying. And then, of course, we did a workshop, kind of presented the, officially to an audience in 2016 in the workshop version asked Iris to come see it and she wasn't able to. She just said she was busy and then after the show was closed, she revealed to me that she was dying of cancer. So it was very... um, The show is... Uh, functionally, artistically, spiritually tied up with Iris and our working together and how she passed and when she passed and yeah. Wow. For anyone who hasn't worked with a dramaturge before, it's 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 a very intimate relationship, isn't it? Isn't Deeply, it? yeah. I mean, it goes to the heart of um, it goes to the heart of what it is to be an artist, and it goes to the heart of what it is to be a writer. And 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 you know, there are some writers. I don't mean to indicate that all writers in any discipline need an editor or need a dramaturg. I know plenty of playwrights who don't want that process, but for me, it was deeply necessary. Um, I'm a writer of um, uh, of instinct, so I put a lot of things on the page, and but I don't have uh, I don't have a good conversation uh, between, um, as John Cleese would say, between my adult brain and my child brain, and so <laughs> the instinctual child brain, the play brain that kind of spits out all of the first draft material, doesn't have an immediate open line to the adult brain that can make sense of that material. It's often months apart before I can kind of replace my head and get into a critical engagement with what I've sped out the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that early engagement with with someone who is bringing their critical faculties to the table while I'm sitting there as a big baby spitting out all this instinctual material to have someone as smart and intuitive as Iris to 
to point out things um, in the in the work that's that's emerging uh, uh, to further the child in their mm-hmm. in their uh, their great kind of uh, playful exploration of the material. Um, that's hugely essential to me, and and certainly by the time myself and Iris were working on Between Breaths, that was uh, at its peak in our relationship. I think we were pushing each other. Um, it was the most heated relationship we had on any play, I think, um, in a good way, ultimately. Yeah. Um, but it's because we were really pushing each other. Uh, we were really challenging each other in ways that we hadn't done before. I mean, there was one point when Iris sat across the table. I remember this. We were sitting across the table, and I, and I kind of challenged one point that she was making, and she just sat, and it was the first time she'd done it in 10 years. She sat, she crossed her, her arms and lit a cigarette and said, I have nothing more to offer you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the most terrifying moment because oh. she was never uh, without words. And she just sure. stopped and said, I have nothing else to offer you. And then I went, you can't say that. And I burst into tears and we laughed and, <laughs> and then we reengaged in conversation. But it wow. ended up that moment of her saying, I have nothing else to offer you, kind of put pause on my um, adamant uh, table thumping. Yeah. Gosh, I'm making I'm making the writing process sound so <laughs> yelling and screaming and table thumping. It's not all that bad. It was lots of laughing and lots of lo- hugs and lots of love as well. But it's um, it is a, it's sometimes the birth can be quite fraught. Sure, yeah. <laughs> of any new play, yeah. <laughs> um, I love how you said that John's story just hit you and moved you, and you didn't know why. Did you have you figured out why now? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I think so. Um, this play was a strange one for me, and I think partly because of Iris's death, but partly because of a bunch of other stuff that was going on in my life at the time. But what the play ultimately did do, uh, and myself and Jill Kiley, who is my collaborator on most things, um, we didn't realize this until we were doing the workshop presentation, first public presentation of it in 2016. Um, we didn't realize this, but myself and Jill have had uh, a kind of 15-year engagement with um, death and dying in, <laughs> in our work that um, had up until this point really been unsatisfactory. We hadn't... Um, we hadn't managed to say in the work what we wanted to say because we didn't... We were young I and mean, we were in our early 30s and we started having those conversations. Mostly the conversation was stoked by, in the beginning, stoked by um, the illness and ultimate, ultimately the death of Jill's father, Peter, yeah. that happened in 2002. And coming out of that, we started to talk about, uh, you know, both of us were raised in kind of, uh, you know, Jill was, Christ- uh, Jill was Catholic, I was Anglican. We were both raised in kind of Christian, uh, deeply seated Newfoundland Christian tradition. And, and, and we both started having these conversations about, um, about sitting in funerals and wakes and the discussion of, of the kind of passage from this life into the joyous afterlife with, you know, uh, God. And, and we just didn't, didn't, uh, fully, um, we didn't see fully a kind of an emotional engagement with the, 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 the idea of death, the Judeo Christian idea of death as a passage into something better. Uh, we didn't see that as an honest engagement with people who were in grief. And uh, of course, right. (laughs) I'm stating the obvious here, but there was something about that, that, uh, in particular Jill, because of her dad's death, uh, she was really wrestling with. And we, we, so we, we wanted to play with the idea of, and we tried to over several shows, at least three or four shows, um, to engage with the idea of death and uh, legacy and how we exit life and exiting life in uh, joy and celebration. And um, was it possible to talk about that in a way that was 
um, truthful and profound and uh, moving, but not necessarily sad. Um, and so we wrestled with that for a long time. And it was only when we were doing that first workshop presentation of Between Breaths and we saw the first run through, Jill turned to me and said, I, I think we did it. Nice. <laughs> um, on the other side, I also think that sometimes, um, <clears throat> not to get too uh, supernatural on it, but I think part of the reason why the play resonated for me back then was because um, the future of developing this play was going to have a very big emotional impact on me that I didn't foresee at the beginning, yeah. both with Iris's death, but also, uh, you know, uh, waiting. I, I've, I've done a lot of work where I interview um, real stories where I interview people uh, who knew the subject matter, but I'd never, including people who had passed, but I'd never waded into that world so quickly. Uh, you know, John Lee passed in um, in uh, 2010, and I started research on this show less than two years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was encountering um, interview subjects who were deeply, deeply grieving. There was not one single interview I did where we didn't share tears. And so that was very heavy and, and the responsibility that comes with that and to try to get that story right and to um, to be honest with the subject matter and to be honest uh, with the story, but at the same time um, provide something uh, at the end that was at very least not going to do harm to the people that had shared their their, their lives and stories with yeah. me, but at best would be healing in some way. Um that was a very heavy process, as you can imagine. Sure, yeah. And so sometimes I think that, that that kind of punch in the gut that I got, uh, if I believed in fate and if I believed in um, uh, all of that stuff, I, I guess I'd, I'd point towards that, that, that somehow someone, something out there was telling me, settle in, this is going to be a bit of an emotional ride for you. Um, interestingly enough, you know, and I, I don't, and I don't mean to, like, people really have a... Um, the the finished work itself, people really have an emotional reaction to it, um, and and this one's an interesting one for me. Uh, and maybe it's maybe it's some some level of myself. I'm guarding myself, and I'm not allowing myself to go there. But uh, I watch this show a lot, and I don't have the same um, I don't have the same visceral emotional engagement with watching it that I have had with other shows like Oil and Water, for example. You know, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's true. Like I've I've seen that show so many times and the play, it just kills me. I'm, I'm just a sure. puddle by the end of it, you know, and I actually have to go hide in the lightning booth because there's anything more embarrassing than a playwright crying at his own play. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Uh, but this one, uh, I'm able to watch it and, and appreciate it, um, but I don't have the same, um, uh, yeah, I don't have the same emotional engagement with the work. Um and yeah, maybe now as I'm saying that out loud, I, it's probably because there's a a level of <laughs> there's a level of uh, emotional protection that's going yeah. on subconsciously where I don't allow myself to engage with it in the same way. Maybe. That makes sense. <laughs> maybe. Well, it sounds how much like... you charge for these sessions, Chris? I'm learning a lot about myself in this moment. <laughs> well, it sounds like such a, an incredible journey from where you started to to where you finished, and I'm just I'm I'm interested in that whole process and how things changed for you from the first draft to the final, and like, what did you discover about the story or the characters or even yourself? Oh, my goodness. I mean, so much. Um, you know, our process, Artistic Fraud, my company has been around for maybe 25 years next year, unbelievably. Um, 
And over that time, we've gone through a bunch of phases. When we first started, um, very much led by uh, Jill um, and uh, her experiences with you. That's how we know each other. Um, <clears throat> Jill coming back from York University and her fascination with large coral-driven pieces. Um, the early work with the company before we had professional status, before we could pay anybody, was this huge volunteer effort for five years where we were creating these massive shows, sometimes as big as 82 people. And yes, I said 82 people, wow. 82. Uh, that was the biggest show we've ever done, um, You know, obviously an amateur volunteer effort. Uh, but that's what drove the company for a while. And then we created a piece called Under Wraps, and that kind of pushed us into the touring realm and uh, into professional status. And once that happened around 2000, and we were uh, able to start finally paying people, weirdly, it caused this uh, inward turn in the company where we started producing very small work because we couldn't afford to pay too many people. <laughs> uh, and so we started doing uh, smaller pieces and we started really, really rushing them to the stage. We were terrified we were going to lose our funding. We were terrified that we weren't going to create enough work. And so for the next five or six years, we were just rushing, rushing, rushing pieces to the stage. And there was some good work in those years, but most of it didn't have a chance to flourish. We just really, these pieces, we just we just created them too fast. We were creating, like, you know, a piece or two a year, and that's just not how either one of us worked. And, and then around 2006, 2007, uh, we reevaluated that, and we looked back at Under Wraps and those other big pieces that we created at the beginning of the, the company and decided – we need to change how we operate because the best work that we've done has come slower and it's come on our own terms. And so we reconfigured how the company works. We started taking much longer in developing a single piece over three or four years with the ultimate goal to get back to um, those big tours that defined uh, the early stages of the company. Well, uh, under wraps, I, I, I remember, it, was that your first professional piece? A lot of things started with that piece. It was hugely important for both of us, I think. I, I remember, I think I saw the very first production of it. I, I think, yeah, I think you did. <laughs> opening night. And I, I, it, what an incredibly honest and brave piece. And it's only now that I think back to it that I realize that you, you were a young guy when you wrote that. Was, and that makes it even more incredible. I was 25, 26, wow. something like that. It's a really interesting thing because I, I say this, I teach quite a bit, you know, at Memorial University here in playwriting. And I. I I think a lot about this because I my my memory of starting to write plays as a young man in St. John's, a young actor in St. John's, my memory of doing that was that I was surrounded, just absolutely surrounded. Like everybody had a one man show, right? <laughs> I was just absolutely surrounded by people that were writing. Uh, it seemed like everybody was writing for the stage, and everyone had these ideas. And my memory back then was that everybody was better than me. Like they were all. Uh, everyone was everyone was better read. They were smarter. They had, they, you know, some of them had trained. I had never trained. Um, and I look back and now and kind of go, well, what was it that allowed me to keep going in the field and to, to kind of establish myself in the writing field enough to have a career in it? And the one thing that, and I have no explanation for it beyond a personality thing, I guess. The one thing I look back on it, as I see now when I engage with students in my class and how many of them are reticent to... Uh, tell their story. Um, right. So many, so many young writers are reticent to tell their story. So many young writers are reticent to, to have an open and honest engagement with stuff they care about in the world from their lens, even if it's not them in the show, 
to to put their lens of the world and what they have to say in the world on the page. Mm-hmm. And and I think that was never I could never concern for me back then. Like I don't I, I was always egotistical enough to think that people would care, I guess. I don't know, or that I had something to say. Uh, but it's and only now when I look when I look at these young writers who are my age who are my age now, I was back then and I see that reticence, do I realize, yeah, I think that was happening with some of the writers around me that they were writing what they thought they had to write as opposed to writing what they needed to write, what yeah. they needed to say. And I always gravitated towards that. You know, I um, around the time I was starting to write too, I, you know, I came out and, and I think that that in itself for the process of that for me anyway was um, coming out was that that was there's no better way to say it. Like I burst out of the closet and mm-hmm. I wanted to tell the world. And so um it would never have occurred to me back then to write about anything other than my own experience and what uh, what my engagement with the world was. But uh, I remain constantly surprised at how many people's first instinct is not to do that. Um, so yeah, Under Wraps was one of those plays. It was you know it was a coming out play. It was uh, based on an experience I had as a young man that you know is hopelessly naive and childish. Now that I look back on it, but was very me- real to me. <laughs> and uh, uh, so so yeah, it, it uh, that's always been my go to thing is. Uh, an honest engagement with what I have to say because what else do you talk about? Like, <laughs> There are people who are better informed on literally everything else in the world besides me. I'm the best Robert Chafe expert there is. <laughs> that, I keep coming back to that. Nobody knows more about Robert Chafe than me. So, yeah. Well, yeah, because I, I think I read once that you said a lot of your work is about being an outsider, sort of desperately trying to find your way in. A lot of your characters are that. So I guess that that, that is... Yeah connection to that that do you feel that that's a theme throughout your work yeah i guess so i was um <laughs> i'll tell you a little story i was i was greatly honored last year by an honorary doctorate at memorial university here and i had to write you know a convocation speech and i was very nervous about that i didn't know what to write about and so i ended up doing a first draft of this thing and thank god friends of mine said you can't talk about that so i, I ended up not saying it <laughs> but my my speech was originally you know uh, uh i was talking to rick mercer who's a friend of mine and rick was like you can't you can't talk about that this is like <laughs> you have to you have to send these kids who are graduating out feeling good you can't get in and write a speech about shame, which is what my speech was about. I was going to write a speech about shame and a particular kind of shame because I look back on it now, I, you know, I think a lot of my generation, certainly me as a, a gay man, a gay Newfoundlander, I was shaped by shame on two fronts, right? It was certainly sexual shame and sexual identity shame. Um, but, you know, I, I was born in 71 in Newfoundland, uh, you know, uh, the late 70s, early 80s were, were a real fire point for um, kind of international engagement with Newfoundland as a culture around mm-hmm. the seal hunt. And that, of course, still continues. But back then, uh, we were, uh, I, I would say, arguably a culture within Canada that was still greatly misunderstood. You know, we're only a half a million people out of this little rock in the middle of the North Atlantic uh, with with not a lot of um, cultural spokespeople on our side. Uh, and, and so there was a tremendous amount of media just at an age where I was, you know, was coming to be 10, 11 years old, just smart enough to kind of start to take this stuff in. There was a tremendous amount of media uh, negatively about this place that I'd grown up in. And, and I didn't quite know what to do with it beyond kind of couch it in shame. I was really yeah. embarrassed. And there was also, you know, there was also at that point we were, for the first time, we were getting a lot of... Um, 
uh, American television programs through through cable access and stuff. And so uh, I was starting to recognize my accent was strange. And whenever I'd hear my accent on the national media, it was being made fun of. And um, and so I, I equate that shame with my kind of sexual identity shame insofar as sexual orientation shame, insofar as uh, when both of those things broke um, – and I use I talk about this to people sometimes who don't understand um, from my perspective don't understand pride and don't understand gay pride is that when that kind of shame breaks the pride that we're talking about is so um, is so powerful and transformative and inclusive um, that it uh, yeah it really kind of changes you as a person and so the pride that I have as a gay man is very similar to the pride that I have as a Newfoundlander. When both of those shame cycles kind of snapped for me, um, I entered a place in my life where my identity um, was stoked in this thing that I wanted to uh, not only celebrate, but I wanted to share. Like I wanted yeah. people to understand. And um, and so a lot of the work that I've created over the years has fallen in one or two of those camps and sometimes both at the same time mm. of, of being about um, um, trying to stoke some sort of understanding of, of what that feeling is, the, the kind of truly authentic uh, self-satisfaction, self-satisfaction, self-love that comes with accepting your identity or orientation in the world, but also the same um, self-satisfaction that comes when you kind of shake off those shackles of cultural shame and and really embrace where you were and in all of its uh, myriad of, of, of problematic elements and, and things that, that, uh, that are still subject to scorn around the world. Um, so yeah, so both of those things have fallen in, my, my plays have fallen into kind of those camps over the years. And one of the things that's been pointed out to me, and this was actually pointed out by Irish years ago, should you keep on writing plays about Americans that come to Newfoundland? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> have transformative moments in Newfoundland. It's like, oh, yeah, I do. And so I get a narrative that I'm very deeply connected to for some reason. I'm still unpacking this for myself. Um, a narrative that a narrative trope that I'm very uh, attached to is uh, the, and I'm using air quotes here, the outsider, the come from way, as has now been popular, popularized, uh, the come from way who comes to Newfoundland, engages with N- Newfoundland and Newfoundlanders in a way, and understands something for themselves that I know to be true from having been here and been yeah. raised here. Uh, and so that's certainly true of Lanier Phillips, and that's certainly true of John Lee and, and some of the other stories that I've written. Um, that that I find um, that I find deeply moving that someone can encounter. Uh, I find that deeply moving anyway. That someone can encounter a culture and um, um, access uh, an understanding of the nuance and complexity and finesse of a culture without having the burden of explaining that fall to that yeah. culture to do so. Um, that I find really moving and so a lot of my plays <laughs> fall into that narrative trump as um uh, narrative trope as uh, i just said narrative trump <laughs> edit that out uh narrative trope as as iris has uh, a couple of times pointed yeah. out to me um yeah yeah did i answer a question on that yeah you did that's it's incredible <laughs> because I, I i never really thought about those parallels between place because place is obviously so important to you yeah and, you know newfoundland plays such a, a central character in so many of your shows but also the parallels with you and your life and your character's life yeah 
I mean, I never really thought about it either until I started to write a, a, a convocation speech about shame. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Rick Mercer, for really pulling me back from the brink on that one and not letting me do that. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a good lecture. Like I should deliver that lecture sometime. I should do a yeah. TED talk or something about it or something. But I don't I don't think it would have been a terribly feel good to send the kids out feeling yeah. good about their new degree. Yeah, it's hard speech. to get that moment of where they throw the hats in the air. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know you've talked a lot about the solitary aspects of writing. Um, and you've said sometimes you need to go into almost like a kind of seclusion when you write. Um, which is what we think about when we think about writers. Yeah. But um, there's also the other side where collaboration seems to be really so important to you. I'm, you mentioned uh, Jill and, and your collaboration relationship with Jill Colley. Can you talk a bit about that relationship and how you two work together? Sure. Um, I think it's still evolving. You know, it's uh, I am. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I got involved in theater at the beginning to be completely truthful, not because I had a deep understanding of the art form or a deep love of the art form. It was, um, as I did say in my final convocation speech, which I did write, deliver, uh, it was uh, it was um, like team sports for the awkward gay kid that didn't play team sports, right? <laughs> it was social. It was a social endeavor when I was in high school and got involved in theater. Uh, it was uh, a group of people working together towards a common end. And that's what I really loved about it was the social collaborative nature of it. So if you had told me back when I was, you know, 17 to 24 years old that I would spend my life as a writer, a significant portion of my working professional life alone by myself, I would have found that quite unbelievable um, because I was nothing if not um, extroverted. And... Um, and so, yeah, so I think the, I think my career in that regard has actually changed me as a person because I, I feel like I'm quite introverted as a person these days. Um, but yeah, so I got I started I started uh, theater as to be an actor, to be in the rehearsal hall, to create work with other people. Uh, I quickly became dissatisfied um, by as we I think all actors become at a certain point. And with very few exceptions, I became dissatisfied, <laughs> whether uh, authentically or so or not, I became dissatisfied with the roles that were being offered to me. And so I, I decided I was going to write parts for myself. And so I started writing plays. And by play two or three, I was suddenly writing plays that, as my engagement with that um, art form was happening, I suddenly started finding myself writing plays that didn't readily have a part for me anymore. Um, and so I became a playwright, and it just kind of slowly emerged in that 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 world. Uh, and I think to become to become a good playwright, um, as 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 I I went down exploring what that art form was and started working with these dramaturgs that I've listed, uh, and my engagement with that side of things started to deepen. My time away from the rehearsal and my kind of uh, direct engagement with collaborators sort of started to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then, as I you know, when um, in 2012, when Jill took over um, English Theatre at National Arts Centre and kind of uh, left the company, and I ended up running the company. Now I have this dual role of being an administrator, um, producer but also an artist and so since that time in the last seven years <clears throat> my engagement with writing has really forced me to a place where I really do have to seek seclusion like I have to I just came back from a writing workshop in Gross Morn where you know I I essentially didn't answer any of my business email I didn't look at email for two weeks and kind of told my producer here that I'm not I'm not available like I really need to and you know over 10 days it took me about five days to kind of 
finally get my head into the play and I spent the last five days writing. Um, that's the kind of, that's how I write these days. I, I, um, I book myself a couple, two or three times a year. I'll book myself a week outside the city, um, a friend's place or someplace with a beautiful view of the ocean. That's becoming necessary. I'll book myself a place and I'll just go and lock myself away and I'll get a big chunk of work done over that kind of condensed period of time. Uh, yeah, so it's become a very solitary solitary way to go about things. But at the same time, on the other side of it is knowing that um, the work is in service of going back into the rehearsal hall, going back and re-engaging with um, Jill as a collaborator. Um, it's always an adventure to go back into the room and see where a piece is going to go. Wow. Uh, this has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I'm really grateful that you let us close off our season with Between Breaths. It's such a beautiful piece, and I think oh, it's thanks. just a great way to end our season. Thank oh, you so thanks, much. Chris. Thank you so much. That was Chris's interview with playwright Robert Chafe. Thank you to CBC in Toronto and in St. John's for making this long-distance conversation possible. And thank you to you for listening to this season of Play Me on CBC. We will be back in the fall to bring you all new hit plays straight to your earbuds. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our back catalogue of plays, where you can find many top shows by award-winning playwrights. We'd love to hear what you think of our show. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes to help get the word out about our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Theatre and on Instagram at PlayMePodcast. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. The associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.